Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 10th, 2018. That's 10-10-18. We have episode 2309 for you today, and we're bringing back a guest we've had on a couple times. He's an author. I, I generally actually don't like to do interviews with authors, because I find authors to be like, Well, I want to talk about my book, but I don't want to tell you what's in it because then nobody will buy it. This guy doesn't do that, and he's here to talk to us about not, not just his new book that you can buy. He's here to talk about freedom through independent publishing. If you've listened to this show for a while, then you know that one of my main themes is entrepreneurship. And I, I don't really care what you do. I care that you do, right? That's, I, I believe that we all have certain things in us that we are, we are innately genius at. That's one of my laws of life. And you should find what those things are for you, and then you should do them to the highest level of your ability, which means you'll be performing at a genius level at one thing or two things. And that's probably better than performing at an okay level at one or two things, which is what most people do with their lives. That's... Typically what people do with a job. And even when you are a genius at what you do, unless you're a very lucky person, and the person employing you knows that they've got something special, you probably don't get to perform at your genius level. It, employment is not designed, especially middle-of-the-road employment, it's not designed for people to perform at a genius level even if they are. Because... You build it to the lowest common denominator. What is the what is the capability of the average person in this position? Great. Here it is. And if you're a little better than that, that's great. Maybe you'll move the next level up. But if you're a lot better than that, well, good, but just do your do your stuff. When you write your own ticket, when you do your own thing, you can take risks and you can perform at the highest level you're capable of. And this means you're going to make mistakes. But in your mistakes, you find your path to freedom. That's what Phil Williams is going to join us to talk about today, finding a path to freedom through independent publishing. And if you are a prospective author, I'm sure you'll love this show. If you're not, I think you'll love it anyway. Because when we talk about business models, the common thing is they're all really, in essence, the same. Effective marketing, good product, good follow-up customer service, build a brand, and keep doing what you do well, and keep doing it a little bit better all the time. That's what we're going to be talking about with Phil today. Before I bring Phil on, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is RidgeWallet.com. I love my Ridge Wallet. I love my Ridge Wallet because I no longer have a great big lump on my ass. I love my Ridge Wallet because when I get into my truck and I drive occasionally, like... Friday, I'm driving down to San Antonio. Uh, I don't get out and have my you know, back all out of whack from sitting on a lump, or I don't have it you know, smart enough to take the wallet out, put it in the cubby hold, forget it, get into the store and not have my wallet. And I don't have to worry about somebody taking an $8 part off of eBay, wanting my ass and stealing my ID and my credit card numbers and stuff like that because I have protection from RFID sniffing. And it looks really cool. And when I pull it out and I use it at stores, people are like, oh, wow, you have the Ridge Wallet. 
Yeah, I guess I do. And I get to tell them about the Survival Podcast. Now they can get a discount on it like you can through the MSB. You get 10% off all products from RidgeWallet.com. If you have not yet tried out the Ridge Wallet, I suggest you check into it and consider it for your life. Check out the other cool stuff they have iPhone cases, an awesome day pack, backup power solutions. They got all kinds of stuff for that urban prepper lifestyle. You'll find it all at RidgeWallet.com. And again, remember, MSB members, get your discount. That's part of what you pay for with MSB is discounts. Next up today, we have JM Bullion. JM Bullion is my go-to source for silver and gold and any other precious metals. I have been 100% consistent with my recommendation on silver and gold in your life. 5% to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold. 5% to 10%, and 5% is fine. 4% is fine. But have something. Have something. Silver and gold have never been worth nothing. They are a wealth assurance program, but my favorite thing about them, they are the number one way to transfer wealth, whether it's between generations or between people that want to do business with each other, and keep it 100% the, the way we talk about it here in Texas. Between you and me and what? The fence post. That means it ain't nobody's business. Silver and gold is the best way to anonymously transfer wealth between parties for whatever reason, including leaving that wealth assurance program behind for your heirs. Now, the thing about silver and gold is the reason it's such a, a great deal and a great thing to be to have some in your life is it's all the same. It's all the same. A silver eagle is a silver eagle is a silver eagle. It's like buying a Wilson basketball. If you buy it from Walmart or Amazon.com or Joe's Sporting Goods, it's the same. Now, unless Joe does a really good job of customer service, and I don't know how much customer service you need with a basketball, you're probably going to buy it wherever that basketball costs the less. Well, with JM Bullion, you're going to get better pricing than the big silver houses like Monex and Atmex. But you're going to get that great customer service as well. We just I wanted to tell this story and brag on JM a little bit, right? So... I just had one of my rare contacts from somebody about JM Bullion that wasn't 100% positive. It wasn't 100% negative either. It was just like, hey, I went to um, use the discount code, and uh, it didn't work that they do for MSB members. And I was like, okay, and I'm reading along. It says, but I called them up, and they couldn't get it to work either, uh, customer service, but they just manually gave me my discount and took care of me. But I just wanted you to know. Okay, okay right. So I get this email, and I, you could tell it just happened. It had been like maybe an hour. And uh, at least been an hour since the guy sent the email. I don't know if it's exactly. So I email Michael, who's the president of Jam Bullion, and say, hey, man, I just want you to know about this. I got a response in, in, in less than one minute that said, we, we, we're made aware of this, and we've already taken care of it. Okay, this is the kind of company I want to have a relationship with, Jam Bullion. Silver and gold are a big investment in your life over time. You want to do business with a company that deserves your business, treats you fairly, gives you good pricing, and takes care of things when they do go wrong, because things do go wrong. Jam Bullion is the only place I would go to buy my gold and silver at this point, because after seven years of working with them, they've earned that respect for me. Give them a shot. I think they'll earn it from you, too. Next up, let's take a look at this day in history. We are going back to the year 1845 on this day, October the 10th. What happened in 1845 on October 10th? A birthday. I'm sure there was a lot of birthdays, right? Uh, but what one thing that was born was the United States Naval Academy. The United States Naval Academy opened in Annapolis, Maryland, with 50 midshipmen students and only seven professors. 
Known as the Naval School until 1850, the curriculum included mathematics and navigation, gunnery, steam, chemistry, English, natural philosophy, and French. The Naval School officially became the United States Naval Academy in 1850. The new curriculum went into effect requiring midshipmen to study at the academy for four years and train aboard ships each summer, the basic format that remains at the academy to this day. So if you ever wondered when that Naval Academy was established in Annapolis, it was on October the 10th, 1845. With that, let's go ahead and get into today's show. I want to bring on our special guest now. Again, Phil Williams, he calls himself an accidental author. He's been writing in the winter for many years with no intention of publishing. Uh, with the support of his wife, he published his first book, Fire the Landscaper, in 2015, with his permaculture site mostly complete. That's how he spent his time writing. Uh, but he's kind of shifted gears, and he's wrote some really awesome stories that are more of the anarchist, libertarian philosophy. And he is now up to, again, 13 books he's authored at this point. Uh, and, and I want you to think about that. And we're going to talk about this when we get Phil on. He published his first book in 2015. He's written 13 books, and it's 2018. And some of these books are short books. He's got a children's book that I think is awesome, by the way. Um, but he has got some books that are like thick-ass novels. And what have I been talking about this week? We, we've been doing Chris Ledoux songs. I'm going to have to split two of them in the next week because i got rewinds coming for you next three days because i got to go down to San Antonio for the Veterans Alcoholic Beverage Competition. Uh, but what I said about Chris Ledoux, 19 albums in 19 years. Phil, 13 books in, what, three years? I'm sure some of that was stuff he's been working on in the past. and re But 13 books in three years? Do you, do you see a pattern that you can recognize? It's a permaculture thing. A pattern recognition here with what makes entrepreneurs successful. There's a lot, but one of them is frequency. And what is that frequency? High and reliable. Whatever it is, it needs to be a high frequency and it needs to be reliable. The people that are following you need to know that in about this amount of time, another one of these things, whatever it is, is going to show up. You do that, you build loyalty. When you build loyalty, you build an audience. When you build an audience, you can then sell to that audience. And when you have something new, it's not starting all over again. You take that new thing and you put it to the people that already bought from you, and they tend to buy again. And every time you do that, that audience grows, and your ability to do it again happens over and over and over. And we see this out of authors all the time. People like Dan Brown, Brad Thor, big, super huge names. Brad Thor's got, I don't know, like 18 or 20-some books in the Scott Harvath saga line alone. But that means that there's a certain number of people that love that storyline, and when Brad releases another book, they're going to buy it. Of course, he's got big-name publishing, number one best-selling author. But can a little guy do this, too? The guest we're bringing on right now is going to tell you, yes, I'm doing it, and here's how, but reinforce one more time. Frequency, frequency, frequency. Be reliable and dependable for people. Do a good job and do it over and over and over again and keep doing it. So many of you guys out there, I see you, you kind of run up to start and you're like, start, ready, get set. Like, and you do one or two things and then it comes back like three months later. I know, no, that's not it. I hear people, I got several members of this audience that say they want to be musicians. If you're not putting out a song a day at minimum a week, on YouTube, you don't really want to be a musician. 
You don't really want to be a musician. You like to talk about it, but you don't really want it. So whether you want to be an author or not, pay attention today. And whatever it is you want, you apply the formulaic process that we're going to talk about today to that. And sooner or later, if you stand through the storm, you will have success. And with that, I want to welcome our special guest today, again, author of 13 books that have gone out in like four years, three years, three and a half, four years, Phil Williams. Hey, Phil, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Jack. I appreciate it. Glad to have you back. It's been a while since we had you on. I actually looked it up. I don't even remember what it was, but this morning when I was putting stuff together, it's, it's been a year or two. Um, so there's probably people here that have no idea who the heck Phil Williams is. So let's start out with the standard question I always ask. Tell, tell everybody a little bit about your background, not just what you're doing now, but like take us back like you're in high school spacing out in study hall or something. You're trying to figure out what to do with your life, and how does it lead you to a world where you're writing books and doing permaculture? Okay, gotcha. Um, well, maybe probably be good to start maybe 11, maybe not quite high school, but about 11 years ago, I was a commercial landscaper in northern Virginia. And at the time, I was really sort of waffling about my job. I wasn't happy with what I was doing. I felt that it was economically and ecologically unsustainable. I, you know, I didn't really fully understand why, but I, I there, there was, but I, I definitely felt that there was that I wasn't fulfilled in my career. So I, I did the crazy thing. I sold my business. Uh, I started organic gardening. I, I didn't have a career at the time. I just, you know, I had, you know, obviously money from the sale of the business, but I didn't know what I wanted to do for a career. So I kind of bounced around sort of trying to figure out where I fit. I went to trade school. I became a, a home energy auditor and a weatherization contractor. That business uh, didn't work out. Um, at the time, I was also getting involved into uh, permaculture. And I had taken a couple of design courses and I was, you know, working on my six acre plot and I was really enjoying it. So I, over the, over the course of a few years, I'd planted over 2000 trees here. I put in four ponds and, you know, a couple thousand linear feet of swales. And, and I, and I even started taking on uh, design consultations and projects for other people. And that business started strong, but, um, about four years ago, I developed some serious tendonitis in both of my elbows. And, um, I ended up sort of, I ended up really having to slow down what I was doing. And then that, the business didn't survive. It wasn't, it, did, it wasn't economically viable without me really pushing it. And, um, I'm actually probably going to have surgery this winter because it's still a, it's still a problem. Um, and, uh, you know, for most of my life, I, I played sports. Um, I played sports in high school and college and I've had a physical type job for most of my life. So losing that ability, to be able to do heavy physical work, it, it's to be honest with you, it's still very difficult. You know, I'm still able to get out and do the work um, on my property, but I have to sort of limit it to no more than like a couple hours a day, and I got to be really careful about. I might take you know two trips for things, and you know, I'm careful about how I lift things, and um, and I, you know, so I really have to. So it's a constant thing that I have to deal with, um, and. Uh, you know, we all get old and we all have that failing health at some point. And I think it's, you know, obviously it's important to take care of yourself, but, you know, we also have to kind of adapt when necessary. So when I got hurt, I had written a book called uh, Fire the Landscaper and it was my first nonfiction book. And, and I really enjoyed the process. The book, you know, it sold okay. Not, you know, it wasn't a bestseller or anything, but I was selling copies and making a little bit of money. And uh, so I got some nice emails from people. Um, and it was something I could do physically, and I, and I was looking forward, 
you know, I'm in my 40s now and I'm looking forward saying, OK, well, what can I do when I'm 80? And um, so then I wrote another book and I like that and then another and, and, I, and I've just gotten to the point where I've really enjoyed it. And now I'm now I'm, now I've got 13 titles, uh, mostly fiction, also a couple nonfiction and a children's picture book. So now I'm basically a full time author uh, writing from the perspective of a permaculturalist and a, and a voluntarist. And you've done everything through independent publishing. So can you maybe talk to our audience a little bit about how independent publishing is applicable to self-sufficiency? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you called it independent publishing. I I hate the self-publishing term because it's so pejorative, I think. Yeah. But uh, Well, if you um, think about it, back, if you think it about it back... Me, Back I'm in sorry. the day, back in the day, if you were an independently published author or self-published author, it meant no one else would have you. Right. Right? Because, right. like, that was the only like, – I'm talking back in the 80s and back. The only way to get anywhere as an author really was, you know, uh, having a, a big-time New York City-type publisher or something. I think one right. of the authors that was one of the first guys that actually made a big number one seller out of a self-published book was a dude named James Redfield. Oh, okay. And this is really before, like, the internet was a thing, but not the thing it is now. And I think they did like 3,000 books and gave them all away. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But today, wow. I, I, people are actually turning down publishers to go independent. Right, right. Which is, which is really cool. Yeah, and back, uh, back in the day, they, they, it was even more pejorative. They called it vanity publishing, mm. which is even worse than self-publishing. <laughs> So, you know, it was you just, just like, did well, it so you, know. you could say you had a book, right? Like, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the indie publishing is big now, and uh, and I think it's very applicable to self sufficiency because uh, first of all, it's a job that you can that you can do anywhere uh, as long as you have an access have access to an internet connection. So I mean, full time, part time, it, it really doesn't matter. It's up to you. Uh, like I said before, if you're old and and decrepit like I'm getting, then it's it's a good it's a good career. Uh, and, and the other thing is, is selling books can be the focus or it can be a way of selling a more expensive product or service. So, for example, when I originally wrote Fire the Landscaper, it wasn't really to sell books as much as I was trying to uh, establish myself as a permaculture consultant and a, and a voice in the industry. So it was more about uh, connecting with people that wanted permaculture consultations. So whether you want to be an author or you're using it as in your business, I think it's, it's definitely a good way to be more self-sufficient. I would agree. I think that anything that puts you in control and in direct co uh, contact with your customer uh, generally does that. Um, and I think one of the things that I, I was kind of bragging on you about before you got on the air is, like, frequency. Like, I, I hear people say they're authors, and I'm like, well, how many books have you written? And they're like, none. Well, you're not an author. <laughs> Unless you write for I'll make exceptions. You write for magazines or something, but, you know, one day. Or, like, we were featuring this week Chris Ledoux. Uh, as our, our, our artist of the week for our songs of the day. And that cat from 1972 to 1989 put out 19 self-labeled albums. Wow. And that's back before then. Or, you know, that's not before you just MP3 downloads or whatever. And I'm like, I, I think it's really important. Like, if you actually say you want something to help, you know, make you self-sufficient to be an income for you, like, you have to put out a lot of content. And you've done that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think it has to be – I think the other thing, one thing I actually I really learned from you is that the content also has to be very high quality. Yeah. So, I mean, that, which is which is obviously easier said than done. I think that's true, but it's also like – so like a, a musician, I'd be like, man, you should be throwing up a cover song on YouTube at least once a week. Just just 
put something out there. If it's not perfect, it's not perfect. But the stuff that you're actually marketing, yeah, that's got to be high quality. It's got to be something mm -hmm. people are going to be willing to pay for. But I guess right. the other thing is the more you do, the higher your quality, right? right. Because oh. by doing it all the time, right. you master your craft. Right, right, absolutely. And, and there's a fine line. It's like, you know, I don't know what the saying is, like the enemy of, of perfect, or I forget what that saying is. but it's, Perfect it's is the enemy of the good. Right, exactly. So, I mean, there's a fine line between, I mean, you could you could literally edit a book for 10 years and, and make it incrementally better. And but where but you haven't really gotten that better that much better as an author because you're still working on the same thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there there is that that line there, I think. Who, who do you think can benefit from independent publishing? Well, I, obviously the authors, which we've which we kind of talked about, which would be the obvious answer, because an indie an indie published author can make about five times more profit on a sale than if you're a trad published because, you know, the trad published have to pay for the publishers and the agents and all that. All the overhead that uh, big buildings require, I guess. Um, but also uh, anyone with their own business. Uh, if you're, you know, actually th think about your, you, you have that book about real estate, and I thought about that um, the other day, and, I, and I'm like, you know what, that would be great for a realtor. Like if a realtor wrote that book, then it's like, hey, um, I'm, I'm sort of giving you insight into the industry, giving you insight into how you can. Now, obviously, they're gonna. They take a different spin than yours. They're not going to say, don't use a realtor and this is how you do it. Yeah. But, uh, but it would be the spin of, Hey, you know, this is how, this would be the best way to sell your book with a re or sell your house with a realtor. Um, you know, these are the things that you can do to get your house ready. And then it, they hand them, hand the client the book. And then it's like you're building that credibility. And probably you'd hand that to the people that you would meet with even before they even become a client. Um, or even uh, you always use the pool, like you use the pool business, uh, the pool cleaning business example all the time, which I think is really, which is really funny and that always sticks in my mind. But it's, it's a great example because it's, it's such a, it's such a simple idea, but it's great for, for a business. If you think about, okay, I'm going to write a, a book on how the best way to, to DIY your pool cleaning. Yeah. And you put it out there. And if it's in a niche on Amazon, there are thousands and thousands of categories. If it's in a niche and you do a good job, it'll sell. Well, it'll you know, sell. you were talking about like the, uh, the real estate one, like basically angling it toward use a real estate agent, you know, and I'm, I don't even think you have to. I think you could be a real estate agent and, 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 and put this book out and say, this is, this is how to sell your house. And you're still going to, the people that are in your market that read that book are still going to be like, well, why don't you do it? Because yeah. there, there's a yeah. lot of that, like, That's one of the best ways that people, you know, like in the investment advisory newsletter thing and all, that, that what they're actually a lot of times doing is getting into a program where basically instead of doing it yourself, they just tell you what to do. And I'm right. not saying they're good or they're bad. I'm just saying once the person's convinced that you know what you're doing, you know, I mean, there's old, one of, you know, one of the famous Homer Simpson quotes is, can't somebody else do it? Right. You know? right. And back right. before Fiverr, I should have done this. It's one of those ideas that you just don't follow through on. I was actually going to make a website called can't somebody else do it dot com. Uh, that's good. And it was just all a little crap you didn't want to do. You could hire someone to do it. That's kind of what Fiverr has become. You right. know? So I, I think, yeah, I think you're right. That's that's definitely one thing is like anybody with a business. And I think any I think anybody that wants to be an author can. I think you'd probably agree with that. That doesn't mean they will. It doesn't right. mean it's not it's not hard. It doesn't mean it's not a struggle. But I think like everybody probably has a story inside of them. Yes. And then if you can tell it in a compelling way, and you might fail your first three or four books, but I think anybody can do it if they really want to. Right. Right. Uh, Go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, no, I, I totally agree with the, uh, uh, I think your spin on the realtor book would, would, would probably work better and be a more honest take on the, the realtor writing that book. You know, now you mentioned that. I think that, I think that would be a, probably a more effective way of doing it. But I didn't put a lot, of, I, obviously I'm not putting a lot of thought into sure. uh, writing realtor books, but, uh, but yeah, I think that would be a nice way of, hey, this is how you could do it, but, Ultimately, if you want to do it, if you want me to do it, I can certainly do it for you. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of guys do stuff like that that are like handyman and stuff like that, and they put all this DIY content on YouTube. Right. Yeah, and, that makes a lot of sense. But the guy always ends his video with something like, you know, but I actually do this for customers, and I work the you know Dallas market or whatever. And the guy's like trying to figure out how to fix his crap, and he finds this guy, and he's like, he's in Dallas. Well, screw right. it. I, I, can't somebody else do it? Right. <laughs> right. You know. And I mean, I feel like that all the time. Even things I end up doing for myself, <laughs> can't somebody else do this for me? Yeah, uh, you know. So we also don't want to oversell, like, you know, indie publishing as being like the end all be all or being super easy. So, what are some of the pitfalls and challenges you've run across as you've gained a lot of experience and not a lot of time, honestly, with your work? Yeah, it's uh, there. There actually are some pretty shady. Snake oil salesman in this uh, in this industry, uh, there you got to really beware of the companies that want to publish your book for you for a fee. Okay. Because the the bottom line is you can upload your book for free to all the platform or all the different retailers. You can do that for free. If there's a a company that says, "Hey, I'll put your book on Amazon and it'll just cost you, you know, ten dollars a month." Yeah. yeah. No. You run away. Run, <laughs> run away. <laughs> uh, and then, and then there are also the companies that they make these extraordinary claims uh, for how many books that they're going to be able to help you sell. That's all crap for the most part. At, at best, they're exaggerating. At worst, I think they're outright lying to people. Um, and 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 it's sad because I run into I I I talk with a lot of authors now, and I and I sort of have an idea of how people feel and it's so hard to get your book out there. And a lot of authors are, for lack of a better term, desperate to get to, to have people read their work. And I, you know, I can, I can commiserate with them. And, um, you know, when, when a company says, Hey, we can do all these things for you. And, and you're like, Hey, that's really what I need. I can see why authors would go that route and because they're desperate. And then of course they get fleeced, um, which is unfortunate. Um, my, the, the biggest challenge, though, beside the you know besides the the snake oil salesman, or in my opinion, is exposure, because there are millions and millions of books out there. So it's it's really really easy to get lost. Most indie publishers, to be honest, don't sell anything. I mean, literally nothing. Ninety eight percent of of published authors don't make a living from their writing, and uh, and that includes all the trad published you know guys. That's just basically authors in general. I saw a stat of something like ninety eight percent don't make a living from their writing. Uh, so so it's it's tough odds. Um, if you're gonna write, I think it's got to be um, helpful, entertaining, and more informative, or preferably all those things if you can get it. And uh, even then, I think it's just a really tough business with tons of competition. You're, you're literally competing with the best authors around the world. And um, as much as you know, I, I agree with you that that everybody can do it. There is a pretty steep learning curve. So if you're not someone who reads regularly, unless you're writing, uh, you know, nonfiction or you're writing about something that you know very well, I don't. I think you would have a tough time writing a book if you're not somebody who who, who reads a lot. 
Uh, I, th- I really think good writers, in my opinion, are, are readers first. And um, so that can be a bit of an issue. Uh, also, there are all the, all the upfront costs. So your up, upfront costs are, are time and money to put together a quality manuscript because, you know, you might want to spring for an editor, you know, a cover artist, formatter, all those good things. And they have to be paid before you make a dime on your book. So you can spend thousands and you might not get a return on your on your investment. You know, sometimes I, I, I wonder if indie publishing is I, I think of it sometimes like the California gold rush. And I wonder, is it OK, the people selling the supplies, you know, made a fortune. And then, of course, the gold miners went broke. Yeah. Yeah, I understand what you're saying there. Um, one of the things that kind of that makes me think of, though, is like it in a weird way, farming and people going into farming. Right. Which sounds nuts, but think about it this way. Like, so anybody can grow out and grow a bunch of lettuce and cucumbers and tomatoes, or corn, whatever it is, right? You can go grow it. You, if you do aquaponics and you put in a deep water rafting system, you can, you can have product available in 30 days. If you do microgreens, you have product available in 11 to, to 15 days, um, from the day you start with a thousand dollar or less investment. But if you don't market ahead of that, if you don't go out and find a place to sell what you're producing, then all you have is a bunch of food sitting there rotting and turning into compost, which right. if you don't market, you also cannot sell. Right. So I think the problem with a lot of people that go into writing is the same problem with people that go into anything because most businesses don't make it five years, right? right. So 90% right. of people that go into business don't make a living from going into business. And, and the difference is, Can you sell what you're producing? And right. I think there is something to be said for getting up every day and pounding out material as a writer. But there's like if you're not putting in, especially in the beginning, some level of an equal amount of time in promoting yourself and what you do. Oh, absolutely. You're not going to have success. I'm sure you've been on more podcasts than just mine. I actually trying to think i've been on a couple okay but to be honest with you that i guess that's maybe for later in our talk but you yeah. know i've i've tried different podcasts and believe it or not it's actually relatively difficult for me to get on a podcast there's not that many good author podcasts and mm-hmm. the ones that there are they typically cater to very well-known authors gotcha um you know and to be honest with you i think your, your podcast is actually bigger than some of these but they're still getting the Uh, some of these big name authors and you know a lot of them won't talk to me i'm actually thinking about starting my own podcast talking to authors i think that's <laughs> a great idea I, yeah. i think that's actually a fantastic idea that would be actually a great way to promote them but also to promote you right right because right. then you're in front of people and, and i'll tell you like you might wonder like how does a podcast with you know five thousand listeners or ten thousand listeners get like a big name author like let's say a brad thor Once you get one, yep. once you get one, then you right. say, well, Brad Thor was on. Well, I, I, Brad Thor was on. I want to be on. So then you get, right. you know, I, I don't even, I don't read much of that world. So uh, actually I prefer books by people like you, honestly. <laughs> But like, the, the okay, Dan Brown. So if you got Dan Brown and Brad Thor, well, then who can't you get? Right. Because when you right. contact, because you're not contacting them at that point, you're contacting their publicist or their, their PA or something like that. And you can say, I recently featured Dan Brown and I recently featured, you know, Brad Thor or I think Tom Clancy's dead, but you know, whatever. Right. Uh, and, and then they're like, well, yeah, well, yeah. So there's, there is basically fame by association. Right. And right. so like the big thing I think that like if I was going to be you and I was going to do a podcast for authors to be on, 
that I would formulate once you're on my show. You want to promote to all of the people on your mail list and your social media that you were on yes. my show. Right. And then you write the material for them. So it's part of like they're like they have a like if you're if you're trying to get on shows, you want to have some level of a press kit that you can send right. out and say, hey, I want to be in a show. You need like a reverse press kit. Right. Like and it's all electronic. You don't print that out. So they can cut and paste. Here's how here's an email to send your followers. Here's what to put on Facebook. Here's what to put right. on Twitter. And just so that way every time you bring somebody on, you're actually using them to get into their warm market while you're letting them in a year. So it's an equal exchange. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I actually run a uh, promotion already called Five Star Thrillers. Basically, it's a group. It's a collaboration type promotion with a bunch of authors, authors, to be honest with you, that are probably more established than me. You know, guys with 20, 30 books that, mm -hmm. you know, they're all indie authors. But, you know, some of these guys have 50,000 people on their email list. Um, and so we sort of pull our, 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 our list together and we send out to everybody and say, hey, you know, we have a group promotion. All these books are for free. They're all lead magnets. So you can, you know, you can sign up for their email list, get the book for free. These are all good authors that we recommend. And, um, and that's been really beneficial. So I was thinking of possibly taking it a step further and doing the same thing. Basically, exactly what you're talking about is mm -hmm. like doing the, doing the, the interviews, but then having them, them promote. Uh, and then I, I, of course, would promote too. But um, but it would be the it would be kind of a, every person that I interview, we're getting more and more promotion for the show. Um, so I'm sort of, and I'd like to do something a little bit more unique. I'd like to get a little bit deeper with the authors and find out exactly why they write, as opposed to just being a big advertisement. So I want to give the readers something to, to you know, to, a reason to listen. Well, see, and that's what I think would be that that's I, I actually said you didn't get to hear it, but in my my intro, I generally don't like interviewing authors on this show. Because right. they generally come on, all they want to talk about is their most recent book. Right, right. Right? And right. then they want to tell you about it, but they don't want to tell you too much about it, so they don't story the, ruin the plot line so that you don't buy it. Right. Right? right. And it's like, like you, could get, you could read the book and they'll buy it. Right. And you usually have to deal with that vapor lock. But if you do a, like the story of authors and their lives and what inspires them and things like that, then people that are readers, right. want to see, they want to hear that. And then when right. you're saying, hey... Make sure when you're on the show, you promote the show. You're asking them to promote themselves. Right. But right. by proxy, they're, they're promoting you, and therefore they'll do it. And like, right. so I was also telling people today when we, I was in doing the intro with this, even if you don't ever want to write a book, listen to this show, because if you want a path to a business, this is a path to a business. So guess what, folks? There's the money of the show right there so far. You can do that with any niche you want. Go yeah. out and find people that are already successful in that niche. Bring them on a podcast to talk about that niche. Get them to promote it back into their marketplace. Build up yourself. You do something in that niche, and then you become the, the, the hub in the wheel, and they're the spokes. And it's yeah. not like you're not helping them. It's not like you're, use, you're using them in a, in a positive manner, right? right. You're using right. their reach, but you're offering them your reach. Right. And you can do right. that with anything. So why aren't you doing that, Phil? You're just busy writing books or something, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it ain't like you put out a couple books a year or something, you know. I mean <laughs> No, it's 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 moving to the top of my list. You're getting me excited about doing this thing. So yeah, it's my goal is to have it out and running by the end of the year. Awesome. So on that note, like if somebody is thinking about publishing a book, what is the process and workflow from start to finish? 
I'm interested in this. I'm writing a book right now called 30 Laws of Life. Wow. And, I, and I've never done actually a book completely on my own. And, and that's kind of what I'm doing with this one. I've been, I, I don't, I have not made the time to write. I was going to say I don't have it. I haven't made the time. I do a show every day, so I've made the time to do a show. Um, but I've always had like a joint author, a co-author, where they would just take my material and kind of do some ghost writing and put a little bit of their own into it. And I actually got to tell you, I hate that. I right. hate that because when they get done with it, I'm like, that's not what I said. That's not right. my voice. You know, right. even editors, like I didn't, I asked you to look for like where I made a run on sentence and turn it into two sentences. I did not ask you to change what I had to say. Right. So what is, what is that process like? By, by the way, before I answer that question, I think it's awesome that you're writing a book and I'm definitely going to keep my eye out for it. Um, and I'll, I'll, I will definitely buy it and read it and, Promote it. Hope maybe down the road next year you might want to come on the show. Love to. Um, yeah. Love to. I think, I think it's fantastic. Um, I think you guys have a ton of wisdom to, to put in a book. So, um, especially if you just think about the thousands of people that you've talked to over the years, it's just unbelievable amount of, of knowledge that's come through your show. Um, anyway, sorry, I just did a little tangent there. No, I appreciate um, it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so the publishing process from start to finish. Um, if I'm writing a novel, I'll start with uh, my list of ideas. So I always have – I have got like a – it's just basically a Word document. Anytime I'm thinking about something, oh, it would be cool if there was a – I don't know. I had this idea that uh, it was like, hey, what if we could – what if in the future they could figure out uh, you know, something in your DNA to determine who the sociopathic people were in society? And then the, they decided to put all these people in a guarded – island and then just let them fend for themselves i was like that's kind of an interesting idea so i write that down i don't know if i'm gonna write that or not but occasionally i'll get these you know crazy ideas and i'll write them down and then and then and then when i go to start a new book i'll um i'll look at that that document i'll read through everything and i'll say you know that one sounds really interesting that's the one i'm passionate about and that's the one i, I end up writing um so then from there i'll i'll do a, i'll do a ton of research on this on whatever the topic is I'll create a, a detailed plot outline. So I'm, I'm, there's, there's two types of authors. They call them either plotters or pantsers. Uh, Stephen King, for example, he's a pantser, like, which basically means that he takes a situation, two people, two guys in a room. I don't know. One guy's locked up and he's like, okay, go. And he's, so basically he's writing it by the seat of his pants. No plot outline, nothing. Okay. Uh, and then you have other people that write very detailed plot outlines. I'm, I'm more of a plotter. Uh, I like to know. I like to know exactly where the story is going to go before I sit down and spend, you know, three months writing it. <laughs> so, you know, okay. I don't want to I don't want to get to the end and realize that I have a terrible ending. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I would create the detailed plot outlines, but I also make um, character bios. So I'll write detailed bios of the characters. So I know when they're in a particular scene. I know who that person is, how they might talk, what kind of tics and idiosyncrasies so, they have. Just so yeah. I understand you, you literally create the character before you write about the character. Yeah. So you take yeah. the character like, like almost like a role playing game. You know, like right. I used to play a little bit. Of that. I never really got into it. I was like, why don't you play Dungeons and Dragons? I'm like, because your girlfriend's in the back and she prefers to sit around and talk than play Dungeons <laughs> right. and Dragons, right? I'm just saying, man. Like, you know, do what you want to do, but you know, you create a character and you give it a life and you. You, you create a bio for it and all this. So you're doing that with right. your characters in your book so that when you, because you, you probably have a plot, but then I'm sure things happen along the way where you're like, oh, yeah, this would be a good idea. So now right. let's say this character's name is, is, is Frank, and Frank is now in this situation. 
how would Frank react given his background knowledge? Age. Exactly. Okay, cool. Very cool. Exactly. Exactly. So, and, and a lot of times as I'm writing the plot outline, characters are kind of coming along for the ride. So it's like, okay, I, this, I, this would be a good situation to have this uh, a character I'm thinking about that would be kind of like this. And so then I'll write something detailed for them. Um, and I'll even go online and say, okay, I need middle-aged man. And I'm writing, uh, you know, and I'll pull a picture. I'll pull up some random picture and I'll put it on their profile that way, I'll, you know, and I'll give my height and weight and, you know, the whole deal. So that way I know. So I'm, so I'm literally on my wall and right in front of me right now actually is a bunch of pictures of random people from the internet, uh, that are posted up all along my wall and, and all their character profiles are right there. So when I'm writing a scene, I can look at these people and, and think about how they would act. And if I need to review something, it's right there. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes I feel weird about typing in like 15 year old boy or whatever. You know, I was yeah. worried about some of this oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the ATF or kicking your FBI or kicking your door in or whatever. Exactly. For, for actually, for the book I'm working on now, I had to, I, I was searching for, um, the, uh, the best ways to commit suicide and oh. doing all the research on that. I'm like, oh my God, it was brutal. But, uh, uh, and I actually found a site that gives you 28 different ways and shows you – it's actually a good site because it tells you how awful it is to even try it Yeah. because it, it nothing is 100% in the pain level and nothing happens as quick as you would think. Okay. Anyway, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But uh, but the, so, yeah, that's part of the research. Uh, y'all go really deep into the, into, into the research and the character bios and the outline. And I'll write um, – sometimes I'll work for about a month before I even write a word of the novel just doing the background stuff. And then the, my novels will go through about nine drafts. Um, I'll, I'll have them edited by two professional editors. One's a structural editor, and right. then the other one's a copy editor. The structural editors, uh, they'll see the manuscript first, and she finds like uh, holes in the plots and uh, you know big picture problems that I need to fix. And uh, and you know and she's you know seen a lot of books. I mean she's actually the the woman I use is a um, she's a She's an author herself, or she was in the past, and very accomplished. And she's good at at finding things that I wouldn't, that maybe I don't see because I'm too too deep into the story. Um, but she sees it from the you know from the reader's perspective, and she'll you know you know she'll help me to fix the problems before they go to go to print. Um, and then once I've once that comes back, I'll fix the problems, do a couple more uh, read throughs, and then I'll send it to the copy editor. And the copy editor is like you were talking about before. She'll go in and line by line. Fixed sentence structure, grammar errors, all that good stuff. And, um, I'm always surprised, Jack. Like the first time I did that, it came back and it was so marked up. It was like, holy crap. I, I, I can't believe that I make so <laughs> many mistakes. Yeah. It was really shocking to me. And over time, that's gotten better, but it still comes back with a fair amount of, uh, mistakes. And um and that's not something that well, you you know you want to present when you go to publish. What you know, you if you told me like you're better at it, that than me of screwing that up, I'd just tell you hold my beer and watch this because yeah. I promise you. Like I always tell people when they ask me to write an article or something, I'm like you're gonna have to edit this because I'm a terrible technical writer and you're lucky I've got time to pound out five pages for you. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think there is a there is a place for that too. And I also I, I'm also the guy that like. Assuming you can spell and it's basically structured right, when I'm reading like a review of somebody's book and I see somebody bitching about their grammar or whatever, I'm like, shut up. Just shut up. Was the story good? You know, that's what I want to know. Or or if it's an informational book, was it, was it valuable? Um, but I I know there are a lot of people that, 
that are like consummate readers and they love the English language. So that's right. important to them. Right. There's also reviewers that love to, to complain. I to mean, bitch. It, it, sometimes you read some, and I, and I, and I'm guilty of reading my own reviews, which I, which is a really bad habit and I'm trying to break myself, but I just can't help myself. Yeah. Uh, so I read, so I read these reviews and of course they're, you know, most of them are good. I mean, I'm probably averaged about 4.5 over the, over a span of about 1400 or so reviews, uh, across all the different books on Amazon, at least on dot com. And, um, but there's, you know, that's a lot of reviews and there's going to be some really bad one stars. And I've, I've read some pretty horrific stuff and, and sometimes it's hard to, uh, especially not so much anymore, but those first one star reviews I got, it was, it was hard to write the next day because it's like, wow, I'm, I'm awful, you know, and you, and you, and you'll vacillate between, at least I do. I'll go between, Oh, I've got this five star review. I'm the best. And I got this one star review. I'm the worst. And that's really not a good place to be. But, um, but I, the reason I do re, re, still kind of read the reviews is I actually go into the comments and thank people that write a, a five star review, basically. That's, I feel like if, if they take the time to read my book, write a nice review, I can at least go in there and say, Hey, thanks for reading, blah, blah, blah. You know um, what? That's how you create super fans too. Because people, I think when they, especially if they don't know you, You're just some guy that they found a book by and they really liked it. You're an author or you're a podcaster or you're a musician or whatever. And you talked to them, right? You right. spoke, you acknowledged right. their existence. And if he's a guy that likes, let's say, like you, let's say you write in the same vein as Brad Thor and he right. likes bad Brad Thor and by some happenstance he found you. He's thinking, I tell Brad Thor he's awesome all the time and that dick never talks to me. Right. right. So right. And it's, it's, it's not really his fault. He doesn't have time to talk to everybody. Right. And so right. I always say use the advantages you have. Right. And it is a small time author that's trying to build up the thing you have that a lot of these bigger name people don't have is time. And, and sometimes it's not even because they won't make time. Well, if, if I can make five grand for doing a 60 minute speech and I have to get on an airplane to do that, guess where I'm spending my time? I'm right. going to go do that. But if I don't have that opportunity, then I need to figure out what proactive thing I can do with my time and talking to people. And that is, so you mentioned that now you're competing with the best authors in the world with independent publishing. You're competing right. with these people that are, have huge names and what what, yep. what have you. You know what, though? They're also competing with you. That's true. That I mean, that's the big thing. They're competing with you, and you can do things they cannot do. Because I think most of them, especially a writer, but I think most people, they might have people that run social media and stuff for them, but those people are not permitted, I would never allow it anyway, to act as them. You right. know you got a response from their team or whatever like right. that. It Because it, I don't want somebody speaking on my behalf. Because you might tell somebody that they're a nice person, I might tell them to go screw <laughs> right. That's part of my marketing. Like, well, you told right. me to screw off. Well, you must have said something you didn't like. At least he was <laughs> honest to you, right? right? You know, we answered you. And you, you have that ability. I think it's great. Now, on the thing that you were talking about there, which is the whole good review, bad review, this hit, like, it, this messed with me a little bit until I, like, like grow up and get over it. Like, yeah. I've been doing it for about a year, and I'd gotten a pretty, pretty good exposure on iTunes, and I had, like, you know, 70 reviews. And, like, Of 70, like 65 were four or five stars, whatever the highest is on iTunes. And right. all this press. And there are like five bad ones. And I, I feel like, why are, why are you even, why do you even give a shit about <laughs> those five people when the other 70 people say how great you're doing? Right. Like you serve those 70 people. Those five people 
probably got on, heard you say something they didn't like. Right. Got, I will show him. And you hear, you can almost hear the keys. Like when you read someone like being pounded yeah. or whatever, and you're like, okay, <laughs> right. so that person got upset for five minutes. Why am I going to get upset for five days? Right. They're oh, gone. They're not coming back. Screw them. I don't care. Yeah, you are. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, it, it's a lesson in sales too. I always told young salespeople, and I learned this from a guy named Forrest Baker when I was a young salesperson. He said, when you're in sales, you get excited, really excited over stupid little things, and you get really depressed over stupid little things, right. and all the work is the stuff in the middle. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so, so once we once we kind of hit the the ninth draft with uh, both the editors sort of have, having a once over, then the 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 manuscript then has to go to the um, formatter. So I have a formatter that takes a Word document and then makes it into the files that you need to upload. Uh, you know, whether it be a Mobi file to go to to you know Amazon Kindle or it's a you know PDF that to go to create space or whatever the the format needs to be and then also the cover artist so she's my formatter also happens to be my cover artist so she'll do a book cover um and um you know once you've got the you know the format's done the uh the cover art's done uh you, you, I normally check over everything uh because I've seen some crazy mistakes happen in formatting. Not that my formatter is not professional. She does a great job. But there's a million and one different uh, ways of, of making a mistake with formatting. And I've seen weird things like italics, uh, weird things with like um, italics missing, um, you know, just crazy stuff that stuff will make your eyes bleed. symbols that you don't understand where oh, that yeah, symbol came from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Crazy stuff that'll just make your eyes bleed and want to pull your hair out because I just spent nine drafts making this thing perfect and now it's going to go out and then it looks like this. It makes it literally makes me insane sometimes. But um, so yeah, so once that once you've checked that over or once I've checked that over, it's it's pretty much good to go. Um, and then um and then after that, I'm sending out my manuscript and character bios to my audiobook narrators. So that's something that I've got. I think I've got eight or nine of my thirteen books in audio now. And they're sort of going down the list. I'd like to get to the point where when a book gets released, it's released in audio about the same time. I'm not quite there yet because I started audio after. I really think that audio is, is the future of books. I mean, I, I'm not making a, I'm not, I'm definitely not making uh, my money back on audio at this point, but uh, I want to kind of be positioned because I think that's kind of where the, where it's going. I think one of the things about audio is that it frees people to, to consume content when they're doing something else. Right. And, oh, absolutely. I, I've said for years that audio is the most powerful form of marketing. That's why back in the day, people spent good money to make a 30-minute cassette tape to promote a product or a service and then spent money to mail it. Right? And like they, when, I, when I've thought about that, when I was starting the podcast, I'm like, you're stupid if you don't do this. Right. Because if people could make a living mailing out tapes, we had to pay for every single one <laughs> of them. And you can distribute it unlimited for free, basically. Yeah, there's hosting and all, but I mean, the cost of doing it to ten is the same as doing it to a thousand. You don't right. even you don't even like have to get really good hosting until you're up to like four or five thousand people. At that point, you want to get a little bit better, you know. And I, and I broke HostGator. They were like, "You got to get out of here." They threw me <laughs> out. When I hit about sixty, seventy thousand people, they were like, "You got to go. You're pulling terabytes of data." Um, but you know, to do ten thousand, you can use. $10 a month hosting and do that. And now the stuff they have like Libsyn and stuff like that. I didn't want to use that back then. I didn't know if they'd survive. 
And I right. didn't want to be a digital sharecropper. All my content's there, and then it dies, right? So, but these they're established platforms. Like people need to understand, like the, the the value of being able to reach that many people. You know how big that is. So I think audio is a great way forward. Um, and like I said, what it does is a guy can be on a stairmaster or uh, walking or jogging or whatever. And the reason I still think it's more powerful than video, because a lot of people are like, video is the future. Everybody has a screen. They do, but I. You know, I guess soon, maybe, because you can have the car drive itself. But if right. you're driving a car, you can't really – you shouldn't. Um, <laughs> if you're gardening, you can't really watch a video. There's a lot right. of things I do that I listen to audio content, whether it's music or book or talk, that I could not – I'd have to stop doing that other thing. Because some work's kind of mindless or you've done it so much – It, it, right. I always do the office space references, you know, Nina while she's collating and right. uh, Milton at a reasonable volume, et cetera. Like people do that and it's already in their life. Right. No, I agree. Yeah, I agree completely. So how much does it cost to do all this stuff? Like what, what is the cost of putting out a book? I, I know it can range from free to thousands of dollars, but like, can you itemize kind of some of the stuff you were talking about, what it actually costs you to do? And it, You know, what are the ones that you know you have an ROI on? What are the ones maybe you think? And what are the ones like you're doing because it polishes it, but maybe right. it doesn't have a direct ROI? Right. Well, you know, I, I actually, I spend quite a bit. I probably spend more than a lot of other indie authors because I, I just, um, I really, really focus on the quality. Well, let me, let me hold you right there for just a second though. You also sell books. Right. 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 So go ahead. I just want to kind of point yeah. that out. Like there, there right. might be a connection. Right. So it costs me about $5,000 for every book that I release. And I'm, I'm releasing about three books a year. Um, so granted, I, you know, as you know, you can do all this for free. But um, my editors, I, I, I really rely on them. They cost me about the two editors combined cost me about $2,500 combined. So the structural editor is usually around $1,500, depending on the word count, because they're going to charge you based on how many words the manuscript is. Okay. Uh, worth every penny, in my opinion. Having that professional evaluate and make detailed suggestions is huge. Because if I, if I, if I published without going, if I just put out what I thought I should have put out, I know that there was lots of, there was mistakes in every single book that I've sent them. And major mistakes that, I mean, maybe they wouldn't have been awful books, but they, I don't think they would have been near as good as what they are now. Um, so definitely worth every penny. And then, of course, the the um, the copy editor is usually is a little bit cheaper. She's usually around a thousand bucks. But uh, again, with the errors, I, I know from, I see the errors when it comes back. So I know it's you know, I know how many errors there probably are. And And it's usually in the in, in the hundreds of things that needed to be fixed. So imagine putting out a book with hundreds and hundreds of errors. Um, and it's not all, always just errors either. Sometimes it's correct, but you know she might have a better way of saying it, or it might be a style thing. Um, so there's that stuff too. Um, so she'll you know having her fix that stuff is definitely worth the money. And then then there's my cover artist and formatter, and I usually spend about five hundred dollars with her and. If you don't have a good cover, you're not going to sell anything. So you might as well not even bother writing the book if you're not going to get a good cover, in my opinion. And unless you're really good at graphic design, and even then, I'm not even 100% sure. Unless, unless you know, making covers is your, you know, is your thing. 
Um, you know, even if you're a graphic designer, but that's, you know, if that's not what you specialize in, I would probably still hire a cover designer. Well, you would you uh, design your idea of it and again, get them to format it. So it might cost, it might be like, I'm really good at writing contracts, but I'm not an attorney. Right. So when I have a contract, I write a contract and I send it to an attorney and it costs me a hell of a lot less, but I'm not doing that contract without an attorney because I'm not an attorney. And I, right. they catch things at times like, well, the, if something goes wrong, that, that extra couple hundred bucks that you just spent might save you like your entire life savings. Right. So the stakes no, aren't that high with a book, but you know, you, the point's the same. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, she, and what she does is she'll, she'll ask me for like a synopsis of the book. She wants to know like the mood and different themes and what the genre is. And, you know, obviously I've, I'll come up with the title, of course. Um, and, and a lot of times I'll go through Shutterstock, send her some photo IDs of some things that kind of caught my eye. I'll send her some covers of other books in the same genre that I liked. And then she takes all that information and then she'll give me three options. And I pay a little bit extra. So she actually does three covers for every book. Um, cause I think, cause I, I really think it's that important. I don't want to just have one cover and then like, oh, I'm stuck with that. So she gives me three options and then from there we'll, you know, I'll pick one and then, you know, usually there's not too many tweaks from there, but, uh, it's definitely worth it. Um, so then, uh, after the cover artist and formatting, so we're up to about 25 or what are we? We're about $3,000 now. And then that final $2,000 I'm spending on audiobook narrating. And, um, if I wrote nonfiction, I'd consider recording it myself. The two nonfiction books I wrote, Fire the Landscaper and the Propaganda Project. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if I were planning to write more nonfiction down the road and I don't have that in the works, I probably would have learned how to do it professionally and then done it myself because I think I could have done a decent job with the, the nonfiction, but the fiction, no way. Because they're 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 professional actors. They know what they're doing. It's a husband and wife team. I don't you don't have to be a dude trying to sound like a woman on the thing, and it sounds terrible. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's nice having professional actors actually act out the parts. And, you know, I think it's just makes the book much more enjoyable. If I tried to act out the parts, it'd be terrible. Yeah. You know, my, uh, my old woman voice isn't very good and yours right. probably isn't either. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, when I do my book, I may do an audio version and it would be kind of silly that I would have somebody else do a book like that, the audio. But if I wrote a novel, there's no way I'm trying to do that. Right. Right. So we covered the nuts and bolts of publishing a book, and we, we did talk in the beginning some ideas on marketing, but can you tell us the stuff you've done to market your book and get it to actually sell that have worked for you, and maybe some things you did that, that didn't work so good? Yeah, I've, I have tried quite a few things. Um, some of the things that have worked, like giving away books for free has worked really well for me, and I know it sounds really counterintuitive, but the more books I give away, the more I sell. And for me, it's all about exposure. So the more people that read and enjoy my work, the more likely I am to sell more. You know, and, and I look at it like even if let's say somebody goes and has no intention whatsoever of ever buying one of my books ever, just wants to get as much free stuff out of me as they can. I still say I have no problem with that because hypothetically they download my book for free. They read it. Who knows? They might actually like the story. They might tell a friend or they might write a review or they might, you know, you know, may, mention it to who knows? They might mention it on a, on a, a blog somewhere or on a – you just never know where that exposure might lead. And um, so I, I so for me, giving away books has, has been a good thing. 
The flip side, of course, you know, when you're giving away books is that sometimes you do get bad reviews from people because it's free. Yeah. There's you know, people don't aren't they don't always investigate it as, you know, they're not looking into the book quite as hard as if they were paying for it. So they might just download it on a whim. It might sit in their Kindle for a year before they even look at it. And then they read it one day and then they're like, and then they don't like it. And then they, you know, give you a bad review because it said the F word. But well, guess what? I put disclaimers in my, in my, um, <laughs> in my, uh, uh, descriptions, but the people that download the stuff for free probably don't even read the disclaimers. So they, and they, they probably don't even remember that there was a disclaimer. So by the time they read it a year later, they're ready to give me a bad review. This but, book sucks. You know. It's all about anarchy. Right. Exactly. Okay, moron. Well, it says that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah. So the the so giving away is 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 nice. Um, another thing that helps is when I am giving away a book to use paid advertising behind the free promotion, which sounds even crazier. It's like okay, not only am I going to give away the book, I'm going to pay. To advertise that I'm giving away the book, so it, literally I'm paying to give away the book, but um, it works. Uh, so BookBub, I don't know if you've heard of that company. I have not. Okay, BookBub is like the gold standard for the uh, for the sort of the paid advertising. And basically, what BookBub is is readers go on there, they sign up for BookBub, and they figure out what books, you know, what genre they like, you know, what they're interested in. And then BookBub sends them an email every whatever days that it comes out. I think it's almost every day. And it has basically all these books that are either free or discounted. And there's a lot of traditional published stuff. There's indie published stuff. Everything's kind of mixed. And there's a lot of there's a lot of services that do this, like what BookBub does. But BookBub is kind of the, the gold standard for it. Um, so uh, if you spend a, a few hundred dollars with BookBub, they'll expose your book to millions of readers. Now, you won't get millions of downloads. Uh, I think the last time I was on there, I got 60,000 downloads for my book, What Happened at the Lake. I was number one in the in the overall free store in Amazon, which isn't actually really that easy to do. Um, but uh, and I got, you know, and, and I had my biggest month sales wise ever. Um, so I've been on there. I've been on there three times and each time was the biggest sales month I'd have ever had. That's pretty cool. And um, it makes it a lot more doable that. You know, I know your books are in uh, printed copy and electronic copy, and, and I'm, I'm going to guess you don't give away printed ones because they cost money. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. so that's another thing. Like, people that say it was easier back when our dads were, you know, young and in relation. No, because if you wanted to give away a book, you had to pay to print it out, and then right. you had to pay to mail it, and right. you had to hope you were mailing it to somebody <laughs> that wanted it. Right. Where if I download your book for free and I didn't really want it, it didn't cost you anything, really. Right. It exactly. might have cost you to publicize it, but you didn't pay for me individually, I guess. Right, right. The bad thing about BookBub is that it's near impossible to get featured on. I've been I've been on there three times, but I've been rejected far far more often. I've heard of authors being rejected hundreds of times before getting on there. So it's it's tough to get to get featured. Um, but there are lesser uh, newsletter companies that do the exact same thing, uh, and they work fine, but not quite as well as BookBub. So, for example, there's uh, free Kindle books today or fkbt.com. Uh, that I, I know the author that runs that. He does a good job. Uh, there's Robin's Reads. There's uh, Free Book C. There's a whole bunch of others. I mean, if you were to were to Google it, you'd find uh, you know authors that have written articles about a whole bunch of them. So there's there's tons of them out there. It's a matter of figuring out, you know, which ones work for you based on the genre. 
Um, so I wouldn't go signing up for tons of them, but there are, there are also free ones too. So, um, I found that the paid ones tend to work better, but you know, if you're on a budget, there certainly are free ones. Um, also the other thing is I have, uh, an author email newsletter and that's, and to me, that's been really, really good. I've about 8,000 people that I email twice per month. And, um, I do my best to, to really try to write something and I try not to make it a, like a, a sales pitch for my books all the time. Cause I just think that I try to treat the people on my email list like they're my friends. Okay. Because a lot of them, I really do think of them as my friends. They write reviews for me. My, my family doesn't even write reviews for me. You know? Yeah, no, I get that. You know, I, I have this neighbor behind me that, that's, you know, trying to be an author late in life. He's like in his late seventies and his thing is he's all over the map. One day he's writing about pirates and the next day he's writing about like some kind of thing that's kind of like a, uh, like like an old school crime novel, uh, like Travis McGee type stuff or whatever. Right. And he writes these really huge books, and he's always wanting me to read them. And I'm like, dude, this isn't my this isn't what I read. Right. I know you're my neighbor, and like <laughs> if you if you if you write something up, I'll even put out on my show or something for you. Like this guy writes these cool books, and people that it is, but I don't have time to sit down and read your 800 page novel. Right. You know. So like, right. I'm not your market. Right. And, right. and so I think people a lot of times, like, they think, well, if my friends and family don't like it, well, if you're writing about pirates running rum and that's not their thing, then their opinion doesn't valid. Now, conversely, if you're writing something that is right in their, their wheelhouse and they love it and they're consuming lots of it and not consuming yours, you might have a problem. Right, right. Yeah, it's funny you talk about that because a lot of new authors, they – They'll write a book and then they want their friends and family to read it, and then they're disappointed that none of their friends and family are interested in reading it. I I, I do have some friends and family that like my, my wife's mother has read all my books, and I write some pretty I write some controversial stuff, even some racy scenes, and so it's kind of it's a little bit embarrassing, but she you know she like she likes that type of type of stuff. Uh, but uh, for example, I, my wife and I were having dinner. With a couple and my wife, she's so supportive and she's, she's, she's wonderful. And she's like, Oh, you got to read this book. And I always cringe when she tells our friends, Oh, you got to read this because it puts, it, it, it's such a bad thing because I think, okay, then they, they may not like to read what I write. And now you give them this book and, and they're like, Oh, that was terrible. Or I didn't like that, that, that language or I didn't like the situation or whatever. And then there's kind of like this weirdness of, Hey, do I mention I hated Phil's book? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I never, I, what I do, my policy is that if somebody wants a book and I happen to have a copy and they're a friend and they ask me for it, I'll give it to them. But I never ask them about it again. I never come back and say, Hey, did you like the book? I don't want to know. If they you know, tell you, they good, tell you, they'll come they back don't. and tell me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it, like, here's the thing, like, Authors, podcasters, musicians, anybody that's in a content generation business, all of that shit's highly personal. Right. There, there's, there's a person probably right now that just went, he said shit, he's an asshole, and he's tur they're turning off because <laughs> I dared use a curse word, right? right. And right. then there's somebody out there that's going, wow, like this guy doesn't give a shit. He talks <laughs> like he really talks. I like that. Right. And you're going to bifurcate, trifurcate, et cetera, into these different groups. And you serve the group that likes what you do. And there's a good chance your friends and family ain't in it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I love this dude back here. He did two tours of duty of Vietnam as a, um, a Navy corpsman with Marine Recon. I think he's a fascinating guy. I love to sit down and drink beer with him. Right. You know, but I don't want to read his books. It ain't personal. <laughs> I just don't care. 
Right. You know, and he doesn't listen to my. I said, I asked him one day. I said, Dennis, do you listen to my podcast? Well, no. Like, well, I'm not into that. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> right. right. Very cool, man. So, um, anything else that's like worked really good, or like you yeah. think like don't do this? Right, right. So yeah, so the so definitely the email list, and I think it's a great. That's when we were talking before about a way to connect with your readers on a personal level. I get when I send out an email to 8,000 people, I'm usually writing to them and saying, "Hey, what do you think about blah blah blah?" And I, you know, I'm, I'm getting lots of emails back. And and the way I look at it is, every time I'm conversing with them, they're, you know, I'm building that strand of a relationship. And I think that that's a, a great way to get, like you said, the super fans, the people that are going to write reviews and the people that are going to tell other people that they enjoyed this book, uh, people that are going to, you know, help you out, uh, when you, when, when really they have no incentive other than they like you to help you out. Um, so the, so the email list has been big. And the other thing about that email list is I, we talked a little bit before about how I'm collaborating with, you know, my author group, five star thrillers. If I didn't have an email list, I couldn't do that. You know, um, <laughs> I sort of, I started with a small email list and the reason I started Five Star Thrillers was because I didn't have a big enough email list to get in to any of these groups that have good authors. So, so I'm like, well, I don't want to subject the, the few people I have on my list to these, to these, to these other groups where I, I, they have some questionable books on there. I need to find, I need to start my own and try to get these good authors to come over here. And of course, that that took a lot of effort of you know going out and emailing, actually making an effort to make connections with people. And the one good thing is, is you know most authors are pretty introverted. So for me, actually making the effort to go out there and, and do it, I think you know is an advantage for me over other authors that that you know just want to just want to sort of be introverted. Um, so I was able to kind of get those you know big time authors, not big time, but for me big time, um, you know to, that way we can collaborate. And I've really built my email list that way. Um, and then podcasts, you know, TSP actually, believe it or not, um, I've got a lot of exposure. A lot of my readers are, are also TSP listeners. Um, you know, just being on your show, I think this is the fourth time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do occasionally get, occasionally you'll see a reference, um, on a review that says, Oh, I saw him or I listened to him on TSP, blah, blah, blah. I did have one that's, that was a one star that said he didn't, he didn't seem so arrogant on the TSP. <laughs> oh, dear so. God. Yeah, so that was funny. But, uh, so I guess the book it was more arrogant, but uh, um, <laughs> what book was arrogant? Uh, Fire of the Landscaper, my first. Oh, really? Time. Yeah. Maybe he yeah. was a landscaper. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so if anybody wants to find out how arrogant I am, you can go to that book. You know, it must be a weird thing for authors too. Like my, I don't even know how we got on the subject. My wife and I were talking about how actors like. And some show was on, and I was like, I can't stand that woman. <laughs> and she's like, you're always so mean. I'm like, no, I'm complimenting her. I'm supposed to hate her character. Right. I'm not saying I don't like her, the person. I'm saying I don't like her, the character in this show. And we ended up talking about how we we had watched this thing some time ago, Little House on the Prairie had like its 40th year anniversary or some crap like that. And they were interviewing the actors and actresses, and the girl that played Little Nelly. She said when she was a kid on that show, she got hate mail. Wow. Right? It's a little girl, you <laughs> idiot. She's an actress. And I think there's probably people that criticize authors because the character they hated the character in right. some way. And maybe you were supposed to. Right. I've, I've had emails from people that were mad at me 
because of what a character said. It was actually a 15 year old girl that I was writing that was, that said some things that they totally disagreed with. And they sent me a nasty email saying, I, I can't believe you said this and blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, I didn't say this. Emily in the book said this. And, and if you look at her background, this makes perfect sense why she would think this or at that stage in her life, how she would feel. I, I think, see, you're nicer than me. See, yeah. my response to somebody would like, be like, that would be, I'm sorry you're too stupid to understand what nonfiction <laughs> is. Right. Or I mean, fiction is. I screwed it up, right? right? I'm sorry that you're too stupid to understand fiction. I created a character. I, I'm not saying this is how people should live their life or whatever. Moron, right? right. So, <laughs> and I always tell people, like, be yourself, but don't be me. Right? Yeah. It might not work for you. You know? Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. The stuff, the, the stuff that hasn't worked, um, there's, I don't know if you've heard of Amazon paid ads. Like there's the AMS ads, which, you know, they're basically the ads that appear on Amazon. Um, where you see them kind of in the margin or you'll see them in the, in the, uh, I forget what, what's called. They call it something like the, I can't remember, but there's, there's the also bots, but then there's another line for stuff that's actually, uh, another line of like books and things that are, you know, paid placement. And I've done AMS ads and they've worked well for nonfiction, but my fiction books, I, I can't sell fiction with an AMS ad and get a good return on investment. Uh, it just hasn't worked. And then Facebook ads, I took a, I actually took a lengthy and very expensive course and I really know the ins and outs of Facebook ads, but I have not been able to get a positive return on investment of a Facebook ad and, um, Pinterest. I actually think Pinterest has some, has some, uh, possibilities and I took a course on that and I've made some effort, but I've gotten nothing but wasted time out of that. Hmm. I'm actually largely negative on social media as far as like trying to sell books on social media. Um, basically, I, at this point, I, I kind of just use it. You know, if somebody wants to chat with me, I'm happy to chat, but I'm not putting a lot of time and effort into it. But I'll tell you the thing for social media with authors for me is like I, I mentioned Dan Brown. I actually really like Dan Brown's books. Kind of wish he'd let Langdon go for a while and go back and he wrote two of the first books he wrote. They were not connected to each other. They, one was Digital Fortress. I don't remember that. They were fantastic. Mm-hmm. I follow Dan Brown because he doesn't try to sell me his book, right? On Facebook, he'll he'll like I'm here, I'm doing research for this next book, and uh, there's this this medieval thing they used to use to kill people. Can you figure out what it is or where I am? That's so cool. He, he's maintaining a connection with his his fan base that's a lot more personal than book based. Right. Like, this is me. This is what I mean. He posted a thing the other night about what wine he was drinking, and I was I, I was actually like, that's a terrible wine, but whatever. Like, but see, <laughs> like I didn't unfollow him over it. Like, so when he does have a new book, which with that guy's probably three years or some shit, um, then if I've forgotten, he'll remind me, and I won't right. be upset about it because for the last three years I've been watching what he's drinking for wine, medieval place, and I'm like, well, what's is he going to write that into a book? Like, what, what, what's that all about? So it's a very soft sell. So it's very much you, you, you don't generally like if you have customers and you're a salesperson and you pick the phone to call your customer, you don't generally say, well, what are you going to buy today? Right. You're like, well, I'm in town. Can we come by and have lunch? Is, you know, what's that last stuff that you picked up? Is it working well for you? And you generally, if you're a good salesperson, a farmer, you don't try to close on that guy every time you talk to him. You get off the phone without asking for nothing. Right. So that way, when you call again, he's like, no, he doesn't want something again. He just keeps calling because he's, you know, he's my friend. And I think social media makes that scalable. Right. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I think for me, part of it probably is that I don't particularly like it. Like at personally, yeah, I get that too. I don't enjoy like telling people, 
you know, what I'm doing, I prefer to just do it. You know, yeah. I, I, I just, I'm not, uh, I, I guess I'm not, I'm, I'm probably a bit more towards the introverted side. I mean, I, I sort of overcome it and do what I need to do, but I think that probably comes out in social media. That's probably why I'm not real good at it. So maybe for other people it might work, but for me it hasn't. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a big part of being yourself and using the things that work for you. Um, one of the things that I saw in your notes is that there's like a decision to be made like for authors like to be exclusive to Amazon or not. How do you right. make that decision? What, what the hell do I get out of saying I'll only sell on Amazon? Right. There's a um, – there's there's, have you heard of the Kindle Unlimited program? Yes, Okay, so yeah, it's just for the listeners. It's basically readers uh, will pay. I think it's somewhere between ten to twenty dollars a month, and they can read as many of the books that are in the Kindle Unlimited program as they want. And then the authors that put their books in the Kindle Unlimited program uh, receive they they're paid based on how many pages are read. So usually for a normal sized novel, it usually ends up being about two bucks. Uh, for each book, which sounds like, oh, that's terrible. You're not hardly getting anything. But if you think about it, a lot of these, a lot of, a lot of, um, these digital books are $2.99. And then once you take the 70% royalty, it's, you know, it's around two bucks. Yeah. So, I mean, my books are, you know, $4.99 or $3.99. But, um, but through the Kindle Unlimited program, I'm getting two bucks and I give away a lot of stuff for free. If you average it all out, I mean, two bucks is fine for me. Um, so the issue is, is, is Amazon makes you, exclusive like you have to so as an author if you want your book to be available in the kindle unlimited program you have to be exclusive to amazon at least digitally now with your print stuff they can still go to all the different retailers that's not a problem but with ebooks you have to be um you have to be exclusive to amazon and then you get into this kindle unlimited program uh the flip side of course when i first started lots of bit of the big indies were saying You know, you really need to be wide to all the retailers. It's really bad to be exclusive because you don't want to put all your eggs in, in the Amazon basket. Amazon can, can just change the rules and they have. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that those are all really good points. And the people, and those big authors, especially the big indie authors, the ones that sell across all the platforms, they probably should sell on all the retailers. But, um, for somebody like me, who's, who's essentially a nobody, um, Being in the Kindle Unlimited program gives me more exposure. Even though I'm not in more retailers, that doesn't really matter as much as I'm more concerned about how many readers are reading my book than how many retailers I'm on. I, I know for, I'm, I don't know for a fact, but I'm about 99% sure that being in the Kindle Unlimited program allows me to reach more readers, uh, in aggregate versus being on all the different retailers. And the other thing is, is I actually make more money in Kindle Unlimited page reads than I do in any other revenue stream. So it's more than direct sales, more than anything. Um, so for me, it makes sense. And the other big benefit is it's, it makes it simpler for me. You know, the time I spend, I don't have to spend as much time up late uploading uh, manuscripts, um, dealing, doing the things that need to be done to, uh, you know, make sure everything's fine at these different retailers. I only have one retailer to worry about. So I only have one description to put up there. When I have to make a change, I've only got to do it once. I don't have to go in and do it five times. So, um, so for me, it's, it just makes it simpler and I get more exposure. Gotcha. Um, you've written and published 13 books in, in a bunch of different genres, but there are some common threads. Could you kind of talk about that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, um, 
I think in back in like 2005, like my point of view for things really started to broaden, and that was with Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and at that time, I was still I still had my business and my landscaping business, that is, and and we had a, a big problem with we were short on fuel, and we're in the Northeast, and I'm like, how the heck are we having a hurricane in the Gulf, and then we can't get gas? And um, and that led me, and, and that made, that kind of set me on this path to to really heavy research into energy, which is the lifeblood of the economy and our comfortable way of life. And that, of course, led me to you know ecolog, you know ecology, and 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 it, which ultimately led to me having a career change, and, and then led me to permaculture, which then, of course, led me to philosophy and ethics, and then I was learning about history and government, and then you know psychology and propaganda, which eventually led to becoming a voluntarist. And doing my best now to sort of try to live, you know, as best I can according to the ethics of permaculture. And all along the way, I was I was sort of reading and taking in information, kind of try, trying to decipher what was true and what was a lie, which is really hard. Um, and trying to do that to the best of my ability. And I kind of fi- and it took me a while, but I figured out that most of entertainment, television, books, and movies are essentially an extension of our culture, our biases, you know, schooling and media and and propaganda basically that's been shoved down our throats since birth. And, you know, there's a reason why you see, uh, you know, in movies and in books that, you know, the soldiers and cops are always the heroes. Uh, and even when they're shown as corrupt, you always have another government agent that comes in, saves the day, writes the wrong, you know, does all the all the things to make people happy. Uh, and, and, and I'm reading these books by other authors and I don't think they necessarily mean to write propaganda, propaganda that's, you know, favorable to government. It's just simply how they, how they view the world. And I, so I wanted to write stories that entertain, but I also wanted to write stories that can educate and then serve as an antidote to propaganda. So some of the common themes that you're going to find are, uh, government abuse of power. Uh, characters that question and actively oppose uh, corrupt power structures. So, and, and I'll show the good, bad, and the ugly of humanity. Everything's open door. Uh, that's, and I guess this is the good and bad of not having somebody tell me what to write. Is that for me, nothing's out of bounds. So I'll show awful scenes of abuse because, in my opinion, these things actually happen to people. And I think it's an insult to victims everywhere if I sugarcoat things. If I if I if I if I can't, if I have to spare the reader or if I'm worried about a, a review, you know, I, I don't think that that's fair to people that actually have lived these things. And if so, if a character you know is going to use the f word and, and and beat their kids, then that's what you're going to see. Um, and uh, you know, many of my uh, protagonists, um, some of you know, a good chunk of them, they understand that. Morality is a, is a universal thing, and this this idea this is an idea that that I think is really compelling because it leads you down these rabbit holes that really makes you see things. In my opinion, see things for how they are, but it also makes you disagree with much of society. So, for example, you know, a lot of my protagonists might have the unpopular view that taxation is theft. You know, that might be that's a, that's an obvious one. Um, a lot of my protagonists are often you know nonviolent. But at the same time, they'll defend themselves and others when necessary, even when they know it's going to hurt them badly. Um, a lot of times my protagonists are, are regular people, so they're going to get hurt when they're punched. They're going to die when they get shot. They're, they're not super soldiers or super cops or uh, slick federal agents or something like that. Um, you know, Stephen King, uh, 
there was a quote that I really like. I'm trying to remember exactly how it goes. It said something like, um, I think it's good fiction is the truth inside the lie. And I think that, I think that, that if I could pick like one theme that runs through all my work is that I'm trying to tell the truth to the best of my ability through stories. Yeah. Yeah, I like the authenticity. I'll tell you one of the one of the authors in the prepper space that's really well known is uh, James Rosalie Rawls. Yep. And when I read, especially his second book, and the guy gets a compound fracture and says he doesn't want to swear at all in the book. The guy, as he's as his bone is protruding through his leg as it's breaking going down a hill, yells Hoover Dam. <laughs> I would just prefer to just leave it alone then. Don't tell right. me what he said. Let me imagine it, because whatever I imagine will be more real than I'm sorry that effing <laughs> bullshit, right? Like, like that's just stupid. And right. and I can respect that you don't want to use those words, but then don't substitute stupid words that nobody in that situation would ever use. I'd rather you say uncharacteristically he swore a great deal or something like that, right? Because right. that's what I don't get. I don't care. I don't give a shit. You could be a, a, a priest uh, that, that took a vow of silence, and you get a bone shoved through your leg. You're going to say some shit you, you normally <laughs> wouldn't say because it effing hurts. Right. right. So I love the authenticity. I've been, as you probably know, chastised many times because I occasionally use adult language on this show. If you came to my house, that's how you'd hear me talk if we're having that kind of a discussion. Right. right? You know, well, my kids listen. That's your problem. Right. right. I mean, I mean, that's you should know what you're putting in front of your kids, you know. And it, it, it's funny to me that people don't stay authentic. Like, and I, you know, I just seen this thing that went around again. Uh, this these old uh, World War II vets singing "Blood on the Risers," which is an airborne paratrooper uh, hymn. And uh, the guy was smoking a cigar and drinking bourbon. And I was thinking, I would pay money. To see somebody go up to this man and tell him that that because this guy's like ninety something years old, been through World War II, that the bourbon and the cigar are bad for him, right? And, and like right. I would love to see his reaction, and but see that would be authentic, and right. I think that's what people people don't get into reading novels because they want you know the inauthentic. They might want fiction, they might want fantasy, but in that in that world they want authenticity, you know, right. Right, and it all depends on the characters. I have plenty of characters that would never, sure, you know, would would never, uh, you know, use a curse word, and and that's and that depends on who they are. You know, I have some some of my worst characters, the most the the most despicable people you would ever want to meet, never say a curse word because they're they're uh, they, they're they're fronting, right? Like, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, and that's why I think like Hollywood's lost. I think this is where all the independents have opportunities. Like every show that comes out now. That has a group of kids in it, twenty somethings, teens in high school, young. There's always two or three kids in the group that are gay. Look, yeah. I am totally okay with the fact that gay people, but not every group of kids has a gay friend in it. Right. Not every right. single group. So why why are we creating this false narrative? And right. I think people like authenticity. And you know what? Some people are bigots and don't like gay people. And if right. you remove that person. Then you remove the totality of the right. storyline, like like right. well, you can't have somebody. Well, you know, like I, I guess you're the guy, the person that wrote hate mail to Nelly on on Little House on the Prairie because you right. don't understand actors right. and fantasy and storylines and right. characters. And anyway, man, I, I'm glad to see you sticking with that um, 
that level of authenticity and yeah. and and basically you can tell people that don't like it to go screw and read something else. Right. I go, appreciate that. Go, go read go read Farmer Phil's Permaculture. There's no yeah. there's no curse words in there because right. there's no reason for there to be. Yeah. You know. Well, you know, you know one thing I've noticed a, a trend over the past 5 to 10 years in entertainment and this is TV and books and movies is that we really have gone the route of political correctness. Um, yeah. it's you know you, there's there's homegrown terror. It's it, I, you see a lot of uh, you know homegrown type terrorists now. Very rarely are you seeing. Um, whereas maybe ten years ago you saw the Islamic terrorists, and now you're seeing much more of the homegrown terrorists. You know criminals on 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 law and order mostly tend to be white. Um, it's 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 interesting to see how we've we, we've taken the political correctness and used it to warp reality. Um, and I and I. I mean, I, I sympathize with with I sympathize with what people are trying to do that they don't want to necessarily stereotype people. I, I understand all that, um, but I but I think that I think that art should reflect re- reality. I don't think it should be now if it's something that's you know fantasy, it's totally made up, and but it's still going to kind of re- have some truths and reflect reality if it's going to be good art, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, man, I appreciate you being with us here again. You want to tell people how they can learn more about you, get your books, all that good stuff? Uh, sure. Um, if you go to uh, philwbooks.com, you can actually you can actually sign up for my email list and get uh, a copy of Against the Grain for free. Um, it's uh, that book I think has 137 reviews on Amazon. I think the rating is 4.8 on that one. So people tend to like that one. Doesn't make too many people mad, but, uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of controversial stuff in that. I mean, it's very, it's very much a voluntarist book. So, um, I, I don't think you're going to get any snowflake responses from this audience. I think I chased them away a long time ago. Right. <laughs> we have one or two show up a week. I'll believe it or not, but they don't, they don't last very long. Right. I can't imagine why. I, I recently put this thing up. I made a meme, and it was the, I'm sure you've seen the girl that they that circulated around, and she's like wearing glasses, and she's totally triggered. And I was like, uh, when somebody reads my jo- friends me, when I accept somebody's friends request who who requested it because I do permaculture and they see my actual profile, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, ah. Yeah, uh, man, I do appreciate you being with us today, Phil, and uh, thank thanks for being on the air with us. And, and whenever you want to come back around, you know the drill: fill out the form, and uh, Dorothy will get you back online with us. Thanks, Jack. I had a great time. Told you to be a great interview. Phil's a good dude, man, and he's laid out a pathway for anybody to follow. Again, it doesn't matter if you want to do it with, with writing. It's the same process. It's frequency, intensity, quality, always doing a little bit better, listening to the people that are paying attention to you, taking feedback, making what you do more what they want, giving it back to them again, getting them to tell your story so that other people come and find you. That I've watched entrepreneur after entrepreneur after entrepreneur in the last 10 plus years of doing this show do it in every walk of life. I am talking to you, the person sitting there right now going, is he really talking to me about what I want to do? I am talking to you. Get off your ass and go do it. No one will do it for you, and there is not a better time to start than now. Every day you wait. Every day you wait is a day lost. Every day you wait is a day lost. I want you to think about your life. I talk about the dash, but think about it this way. There's a giant vase in the corner of your your house. 
In that vase is a whole bunch of marbles. They're little blue marbles, and they glow with this eerie blueness, and they are your life force for one day. And every day to, to, to operate, think of them like a battery. You go over, you pull a marble out of that vase, and there's a little hole in your arm, and you stick it in there. And if you open that hole, you know, right before you put the next marble in, the first one's almost gone. It runs you, it powers you for a day. And that vase hopefully has a whole bunch of marbles in it right now. But every day, another one's gone, 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 another one. And the level of the vase and the blue marbles is going down. That is your time running out to do what you really want to do with your life. Take it serious because it is serious. You will not have the things you want in your life unless you go get them for yourself. There is no train or truck or ship coming in with your stuff on it and what you want. You have to go out and conquer it like a warrior. That's what frequency is about. It's about fighting that battle against yourself that says, I could be screwing off right now. I could be doing something else right now. But I need to get this done because this is important to me. Those are my thoughts on that. Anyway, guys, if you like this show and the work that we do and you want to help support us, the painless way to do that is you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. Easy to remember. tspaz.com. Goes to a section of the survivalpodcast.com. You can see all my reviews on Amazon. And remember, if it's there, I own it. I use it. It's in my life or I wouldn't recommend it for you. Um, and I'll tell you what, no matter what you buy, if you start there, you help support the Survival Podcast. So um, today I have for you the Dura Heat Kerosene Heater. Yes, kerosene heater. What? My God, Jack, don't you know how dangerous those things are? Hold on. Calm down. Let's take a look at that concern. You know, guys, we now live in a society where they put do not iron clothes while wearing them as a warning label on irons. Think about that for a moment, please. Oven doors have warnings not to stand on them and use them as a stepladder. Yes, really, my oven has that warning on it. Do you think if kerosene heaters were the death machine somebody claimed, there would be any company in business selling them today in our litigious society? The answer is no. That said, safety is a concern, which is one reason I like this model. If you bump it harder, it gets tipped over, it shuts itself off. It also has a great heat cage so you don't accidentally burn yourself. And I know what you're thinking now. What about CO2, you fool? We will all die. Please take a breath and let me ask you, when exactly was the last time you heard kerosene heater kills family of four? Anyway, yes, CO2 is produced when you burn any organic fuel, but here's the basic rules for using a heater like this. Rule number one, do not use it in a small, closed-in room. Okay. Number two, always make sure your wick is in good condition. Take care of your wick, guys. Number three, don't burn the flame too high. If it's smoking at all, it's way too high. And four, go ahead, crack a window or two just a little bit to allow some circulation. That last one probably isn't needed but with, with modern heaters, but it's so cheap to do and so simple, there's no reason not to do so. You do those things... And it's safe. And hundreds of thousands or millions of people a year rely on kerosene heaters in one form or another for heat, and they do not kill themselves. The big question for you in choosing a backup heating uh, source to me is what fuel is most available? Kerosene heaters are so much better than propane space heaters, it is not even funny. 
They give a warm, deep, 360-degree radiating heat. My wife and I heated a 2,200-square-foot home with two of them through a Pennsylvania winter when we were trying to save on electricity, and they did great. We still use the electric heat a little bit, but they did a fantastic job. 2,200 square feet, two stories. Put one downstairs, one upstairs. The house was comfortable. Uh, just during the day when the sun was out, even when it was below 20 degrees, the house was comfortable without the electric heat being run at all. You can't do that with propane space heaters like the Big Buddy Heater. They just don't have that kind of power. They don't make that kind of efficient use of their fuel. However, when I lived in Pennsylvania, I could drive down to any gas station, and there was a K1 pump. That's kerosene, for those of you that don't know. Uh, so I could get kerosene for about the price of diesel fuel anywhere. Here, it's a lot harder to find. So I switched to propane. We use supplemental heat a lot less here, and I can get propane anywhere, and I can't get kerosene except a few places. And I don't want to pay $8 a gallon for it in a little bottle at Tractor Supply uh, for the special stuff that's really just kerosene. So um, you need to think about fuel availability when you make that decision. But if kerosene is readily available at fair prices where you live, this is the best bang for buck in supplemental heating. The thing's $150 shipped free to your house. If you look at it, it has the one I'm recommending has massive quality, high-quality reviews on Amazon. Uh, the ones that are low-quality, they're low-quality brain cells. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, this is an outstanding product, and winter is coming. Winter always comes. Are you ready? Backup heat's important. I've talked about this, this story a bunch of times, but there was one year in Arkansas, my wife and son and I went seven days with no electricity, with temperatures. The highest temperatures were still below freezing for most of that period. There was an ice storm. It took down trees that you could not get your arms around all over the place. They didn't break. Shallow root, huge pine trees on granite. The whole tree just fell over, collapsed. Power lines all over the place. There was over a million people without power in the state at the height of it. Okay? Uh, I think there's only like around 2 million people in Arkansas. So like half the people in the state of Arkansas did not have electricity at the, at the worst point in this whole thing. We were one of the last to get our power back because we were the last leg in a rural area and they take care of the high density first and they should. If you have serious winter cold, you need a backup heating solution. I really recommend you take a look at this one. Uh, also, the other way you can help support us is what? Join the MSB or Member Support Brigade. Please consider doing that if you never have. Please consider coming back if you've been a past member. If you used to be a member, I just recently sent out a discount to win you back. If you didn't get that email, email me and I'll send it to you. Everybody else, you know what? Don't join today. Don't join Friday. Don't join Monday. When I get this uh, alcohol beverage competition that I'm, I'm judging, and I might be speaking at as well down in San Antonio, when I get that done and I come back, I'm going to run a sale. So hold off. See, Jack's a good guy. He'll let you know. Don't spend your money today. You can get a sale price on Tuesday next week. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Uh, I really hate breaking up Chris Ledoux week into two different weeks. Uh, Chris Ledoux is one of my favorite artists. I love his work ethic. I love his, his, his realness, his grittiness. Uh, I love his old cowboy songs. I love his kind of rock country songs. I love his, his love songs. I mean, he's just a very talented guy that we lost way too young, by the way. I think he was like 51 or 52 when he passed. Uh, it's just it's just sad. And it, again, what I say today, those blue marbles are running out of that vase. And you never know when you're going to have your last marble. If that vase was real, you could look at it and you could see, damn, there's only like 10 of those left in there. I better do something with the last 10 days. You, we don't get to know that. So the metaphor is real, but it's not accurate. His last marble ran out. 
And fortunately, he left, because of that work ethic, a hell of a legacy behind. This song is actually a cover, though. As far as I know, the original artist to release this was Charlie Daniels, is the is in the Charlie Daniels band in 1976, and I believe it was for a movie about Billy the Kid. And uh, the, the video that some fan put together with Chris's version uses um, Young Guns and Young Guns 2 footage in it, which that's not what this song is for. I think it was an older Billy the Kid movie that, that Charlie Daniels did some of the soundtrack for, and that's, that's the genesis of it. Could have been Charlie covered it, but I, I can't find any evidence that it was anybody did it before. I'll tell you the truth. As much as I love Chris will do, I like Charlie Daniels' version of this song better. But this is a good, solid version of this song. And what I really like about this song is it actually is a pretty good telling of the story of Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett and, and the way things really went down. And what I like about this song compared to some of the songs uh, that were part of the Young Guns uh, soundtracks is Billy the Kid is not presented as a hero here. I, I think that Billy the Kid is one of those people from history that we can try to understand and realize that Maybe it's not all bad, but in the end, Billy the Kid was a murderer. He was a cold-blooded killer that killed innocent people that didn't need to die. He probably killed some people that did need to die, but that doesn't erase killing people that you know should have never been killed. And the modern take in the Young Gun series made great movies, but they're they're far out of touch with reality. This song is a lot, a lot closer to reality because there is some sympathy with this guy being so young and having been put into a certain circumstance. But here's the reality, and here's, I guess, the lesson in this song for everybody. I know so many people that when you point out things that they're doing in their life that are kind of like maybe dumb or maybe just like you really shouldn't do that, or sometimes it's just like you're just – it's not really hurting you. You're just not getting what you should out of life. Like you're missing out on opportunities. Well, my parents this, my parents that, whatever. And it's always, if it ain't their parents, it's something in their background, something in their history. Your history's your history. History's your history. It lives one place in your head. You have your choice that you have to make. You turn into a Billy the Kid, you turn into a Pat Garrett, which if you look at history, wasn't really much better. Or do you become something all and of it to yourself? that actually allows you to do something great. The choice is yours. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In the southern part of Texas, east and west of El Paso, where the mighty Franklin Mountains guard the trail to Mexico, There's a new-made winter crying and her hearse rolling slow. And I guess that devil's passed this weekend. There's a lathered sorrel stallion running through the Joshua trees. A young man in the saddle with his coattails in the breeze. Got a six-gun on his right hip and a rifle at his knee. And he's dealing in a game that he can't win. Poor Billy Bonnie, you're only 21. Pat Garrett's got your name on it. Not your car, and your six guns got a bloody tail to tell. You're a mile ahead of Garrett and a step outside of hell. Them fancy clothes you're wearing and the women in your bed. 
can't take away the faces of the men that you left dead As you ride across the bad land with a price upon your head Now that wheel of fortune starts to turn Your reputation's grown till it's the biggest in the land And there ain't a lot of people left who'd want to call your hand And I guess you go down shooting just like all branded men When you shake hands with the devil you get burned Got your name on every bullet in his gun Each not your car, but your six guns Got a bloody tail to tail You're a mile ahead of Garrett And a step outside of hell Tell, tell, you're a mile ahead of Garrett and a step outside of hell. 